Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. In this podcast, we're going to discuss new research and evidence-based findings, we're going to raise new ideas and debate current thinking, and we'll speak to a variety of experts in an attempt to unpick the key ingredients to making great places in urban environments. Today we're going to be talking about child-friendly design and development. If you look at the idealized images that advertise future regeneration projects, there's usually no shortage of children at play. The sight of seemingly unsupervised children frolicking in fountains or cruising on scooters has an instant appeal, which is why it's such a popular sight in brochures and on hoardings. It seems to suggest that the ultimate in a happy community, neighborhood safety, and user-friendliness means having lots of children on the street. Why is this site so compelling? Well, like any fantasy, it contains a grain of truth. Research has shown that if children play out, more people of all kinds use those spaces too. So we know that the success of our cities, its economic and social progressiveness, is linked to child friendliness. So what design characteristics can impact the social use of the city? How do we design real children in and get the benefit for the whole community? I spoke to Natasha Kapoor, an anthropologist who has researched the history of the playground, about why we started designing designated play spaces in the city and the evolution of these destination playgrounds. So Natasha, why do we see playgrounds the way they are now? How did they come to be these places that we bring our kids to that are kind of these isolated islands in our parks? And I mean, where, why are they designed the way they are? Well, it's a really interesting question. And, um, Uh, I kind of had that question myself. Um, I was a new parent and I was spending a lot of time in playgrounds and I noticed that some of them were really popular and had been newly redesigned and kids love them and other ones look like nobody had used them forever. Uh, maybe with one lonely parent and their child wondering where the party was. But um, so I started thinking about what these spaces represent and also I think playgrounds are just quite overlooked in terms of what they sort of represent for children. So we, we often think about the school setting um, and, and we agonize over which schools our kids go to and which teachers they have and spend a lot of time thinking about kind of that learning environment. But I really hadn't heard of anybody talk about the playground very much um, in terms of what it represents for children. And, and we so, know that the playground is really key place of learning too, that play is now so central. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you have a sense of why we're overlooking it? I mean, have we just not considered it part of their formative experience? I think we, I think we probably just, um, it's like, and it's like a lot of these things in our lives, which are so routine and so part of life that we take them for granted. Um, and, you know, I guess socially, politically, we're not talking about um, you know, there's no minister of play, there's minister of education. And so we don't, we don't have a, a narrative around play in the same way that we have a narrative around education. Um, but it's not to say that playgrounds are not absolutely linked to kind of our notion of education. And if you look at the design of the playground, it's obvious. So um, it's probably worth looking at the history of kind of where playgrounds came from. And um, they were uh, sort of largely conceived around 150 years ago as a response to social problems to do with health, living in cities, and immigration. Um, And so, for example, the German kindergarten movement in the 30s 
was designed to make middle-class parents feel better um, about their nannies and their servants so they couldn't be seen in the homes let's take them out put them in a visible space and then we can actually know what's going on there and um, and then in America and in the UK uh, playgrounds were designed to pull immigrant kids out of the home and into a more visible space again where they could be monitored and their sort of actions and their bodies could be corrected so so this kind of idea of having a separate space designed for play was very much a designed social solution to a problem that people at the time felt they needed to solve. And and so now if we look at sort of that design of a playground, like what is it? Well, it's always sort of a, a space kind of in a residential neighborhood, so somewhere you can get to relatively easily. Um, but it's, it is gated. There is sort of a fence around it uh, most of the time. And, um, and it does tend to be outdoors. So there's, there's something, there's a, there's a concept in sociology called the panopticon. You may or may not be familiar with it, but it's what, it's what kind of this um, sociologist, Michel Foucault, talked about when he was referring to um, any system of control whereby you felt like you were being watched and therefore you corrected your behavior as a result. So you didn't necessarily know if you were, but you acted accordingly. Um, and it's, I mean, it's often um, the classic example of Panopticon is a prison. Um, and yet when we look at the playground, it is absolutely still that type of um, a design. So a space where it's open, it's kind of bounded, um, and it's, um, it, it's absolutely kind of a, a, a performance of, of play, um, as opposed to climbing a tree um, in a park or, um, or walking along a wall um, on your way to school or, you know, the type of play that happens as and when you are moving around. Um, so that, that's the crucial difference between a playground um, in that it's a design space which is, which is kind of designated for play versus the kind of play that children would do anywhere at any time um, if given the chance. So around the 70s, um, there were a bunch of high-profile cases in the UK of children having accidents on playgrounds. So they really weren't the same as places. Like, and a lot of the play equipment was really badly kept. And, and you know, to some extent, they needed to be cared for. Um, but so, yeah, safety guidelines sort of needed to be put in place. And the time the time was right to, to reevaluate them in that, in that sense. Um, and there was a program called That's Life. Um, that had considerable influence in shaping public policy at the time. And they took up the cause of safety surfacing. So the idea that you could put a, that spongy type surface, you know what I mean, in playgrounds, um, and that would make it more safe. So if you've ever been in that playground, and you probably know what that is, it's kind of like that, that material that actually feels quite cool to walk on underneath where people, where the kids are climbing. Um, and that, so they, they thought that would be the fix. Let's put this spongy surface down, and then kids won't hurt themselves as much. But there has been um, studies that have shown that there aren't actually fewer accidents um, as a result. And so anyways, for decades and decades, not decades, decades, for decades, um, safety was the main concern in playgrounds, and it kind of mirrored that relationship that parents 
parents were forming with their children, um, seeing children as vulnerable to be protected, um, the playground, it was all about safety. Um, and as a result, they also became more boring. (laughs) And that's the problem is that we created, we took the fun, we took the risk out of this play environment, which meant that kids, you know, over a very young age were just uninterested. So you might have a toddler interested in climbing up a climbing up a ladder and going down a slide and doing that over and over again, but that wears out pretty quickly. Um, So you have these sort of abandoned spaces that weren't being used. And I mean, I guess the other thing to say about this is, and then what was happening during those decades was there was also kind of an inflated sense or fear of uh, stranger danger and fear of abduction. Um, You know, all that stuff that kind of surrounded public spaces and as a result, socially and culturally, I think we we sort of uh, retreated into our private spaces a lot more um, than we had in the past. So you get kids who are far more likely to spend time in front of screens, um, far far less likely to have outdoor play at all. Well, I don't think we understood what harm it would cause. I mean, I guess there was some understanding that kids watching television and playing video games all day long wasn't a great idea, but I don't think we really understood what it meant to not be experiencing those risks, which sort of brings us to the present day and what we have now, which is, I think, largely just more of an understanding of child development, um, more of an understanding also of what happens when you have a generation of kids who've grown up and they haven't experienced those kind of um, more sort of risky play experiences because what happens as you get older is that you haven't had the experience in a in a safe play environment to develop your capacity to handle risk and that might sound like you know risk is quite a big word and it's it's not often thought of in kind of normal everyday in a normal everyday way but risk is your ability to kind of walk out the door you know like your ability to get on a bus your ability to make decisions for yourself and not make the wrong decisions um so i mean a lot of our psychology is wrapped up in this ability to basically develop independence so from a young age as we get older we are getting more and more or we should be hopefully becoming more and more capable of handling you know of being able to make decisions and choices for ourselves and not crumbling the second the second something goes wrong or you know what it's like having children the the two-year-old versus the six-year-old or the eight-year-old you see that they're able to handle their emotions better but all of that comes from uh experience And if they are exposed to experiences that allow them to understand their body and get to know their body and know what works and what doesn't work, then they're more likely to be able to go on to become independent beings. So if you have an experience risk, I'm guessing you're going to be much more fearful as an adult. You're going to perhaps be less resilient if something happens to you. And these are words that we hear all the time. We hear about a fear-based culture being a really negative place to be, easier to be controlled, you know, as a, as a society. And then we also hear about how we need people who are resilient. We need people who are able to 
think outside the box, be creative. And it seems like creative play can't be that different to risky play as a concept. Well, it's funny you should say that. I mean, back to the school setting, it is all about resilience these days. I mean, in my daughter's school, um, uh, they are absolutely understanding the benefit of failure. And um, I think it's even an acronym, first attempt in learning. You know, this idea that it's not about doing well, it's your ability to bounce back. So you fail and you try again and you fail and you try again. And that's the point, you know, that's, that's how you get somewhere. So, so again, we're seeing, we're seeing this kind of concept of risk being mirrored in the, the playground setting, the social, uh, the school setting. Um, And it's, and it's, um, it also points to the types of um, skills and the types of people we need our children to become. So the things that we want our children to learn are often based on what we need them to do when they're older. So we need them to live in a certain way. We need them to work in a certain way. We need them to have those skills. And so at some level, this has been identified as the types of skills necessary in order to create a successful population. So the playground is kind of a, a microcosm. It's a playground as classroom. It's a place of learning, and it mirrors what we want them to be. So mm-hmm. if we want them to be resilient, then it has to have playground equipment that you can't actually do the first time around that you have to try whether it's monkey bars or whatever you have to try and fail and try and fail until you can do that successfully and perhaps that's a way of of learning about failure and learning about resilience well so exactly so children can experience risks through any number of of activities they can you know climbing trees and rolling down hills and all sorts of stuff um But the specific risky activities that have been chosen for redesigned playgrounds in the West, such as tall climbing structures, um, skateboard parks, uh, zip lines, those types of things, they absolutely mirror um, how society is in a state of attraction to these types of activities because they teach skills that are just increasingly what institutions expect of people. So if I go into one of these new playgrounds that are reintroducing risk into play, what should I be putting in there? What kind of things um, do we need to experience in these playgrounds? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think what's useful here is to um, reference a theory that I've found quite useful in understanding how risk operates at a bodily level. Um, there's a theorist by the name of Susant Mahalyi, and he has um, uh, pioneered this theory of flow. And he talks about flow as being kind of um, uh, when you're in a state of experience that perfectly matches up kind of your own abilities with your environment. So I think most of us would probably um, uh, have experience with flow. So anytime you, I mean, even doing the dishes for that matter, like you've done it so many times, you know, that space, you just kind of go through the motions and you almost enter a certain, you can anyways, if you don't have lots of children running around, you can enter a certain meditative state. And, um, so flow can be experienced in both work and play activities. Um, so for example, um, you know, mastering a musical instrument or mastering a, a surgical technique. And it's very much about just kind of feeling like you've got it covered. You know, you, you're in the zone. You, you, um, you almost lose yourself in those moments. Um, and so 
um, a lot of risky activities. His theory has been used quite a lot to look at kind of these very intense um, situations or activities that people find themselves in. Because nowadays, I mean, there's it, it, you get these incredibly high-pressured environments and you get people and they need to be able to, in a sense, handle a lot of what's going on around them um, and, and work their way through it. So, for instance, like coming back to the playground, a climbing structure um, replicates this and produces that matching up required for flow to occur. So climbing creates a certain feedback loop of emotions um, as reflected. So, you know, if, if a climb, the climber knows if he's doing well, if he feels sort of in control of his actions, whereas the arousal of fear signals immediately that he's doing poorly and then you adjust your behavior. So climbing structures in a playground might be less risky than that of, say, a cliff face or maybe a giant tree. Um, but relatively speaking, the same feedback mechanism is is happening. Um, so I'm putting my, my hands on it and I'm thinking, I got this. I got this. Oh, no, wait, I don't have this. Yeah. And, and then I'm continuing and then I'm correcting it saying, no, wait, wait. I got it. <laughs> exactly. And that's what's really important is that you're allowed the ability to kind of change paths based on what your body is telling you, based on, well, can I take this step or can I not take this step? But you're given that choice and then you decide whether you do or you don't. Um, so that's that's another aspect that's important for flow experiences to occur is that um, you can continuously kind of come back to the same sort of environment and change the rules and find it interesting. So it's very open-ended type experiences. So any kind of, um, are you familiar with edge work activities? Like anything extreme, you know, the rise in extreme sports and like that kind of, this is all, you know, very much in these kind of flow experiences. You have these kind of, you have just, it just feels like it's you in, in a space and you make what you can out of it. So the climbing structure could be said to be sort of rhizomatic in its design, that type of um, like endlessness as opposed to linear, rather than following prescribed rules, the climber can project their own challenges time and time again. And I often find, you know, since I've, since I've done this study on playgrounds, I'm just amazed at how often I see a climb, a set of climbing grips in um, environments that that have children visiting so so practically every school playground has a wall with climbing grips they're just and and it's almost become the way that you designate a space for where children can play <laughs> like a couple of climbing grips like screwed into a brick wall and and you're set <laughs> I mean and it's not to say that that's enough but that I think encapsulates this kind of the what is what is being prioritized and privileged in these redesigned playgrounds, that kind of idea of open-endedness, of being able to come back again and again to a space and do it differently. So it isn't just climb up a structure, go down a slide, climb up a structure, go down a slide. It's very much kind of making something out of very little, but you see yourself through it. And um, learning how you relate to that space and how you relate to that activity and what you can handle and what you can't handle, but having an opportunity to learn that about yourself. 
but as you say, we're still on a playing ground <laughs> and, and, you know, while kids, kids want to play and yet there's still this pressure to have them play in designated spaces and these kind of contained and watched spaces. Um, and the reality is that the very presence of children in public space is often met with hostility. Um, so, you know, behavior that was once considered hanging out is now labeled antisocial and the minority of parents that resist it are stigmatized. Um, so, you know, when your own kid's the only one who's going to the shops on their own or going swimming on their own, um, it looks strange. Um, like you say, those statistics, one out of 10, well, there's still one and it's, just, but that, but that, you know, that kid is, is going to feel it. So, you know. I guess I and there are some practical reasons why we can't play out on the streets um, as much as we'd like, but with the exception of cars, um, these cars are absolutely you know just a no go zone. Um, kids just can't be seen by car drivers, and so they're just these little things, and it's just it's not a good scene. But with the exception of cars, um, fears around abduction. Um, um, and and kind of social issues which keep us out of public spaces are just largely exaggerated but i think um so so there's all of that um so the risk of something actually happening if you're with the exception of cars is very very small yeah yeah so i mean but there are some practical reasons why you can't do it and it's very difficult which is why these playgrounds are so popular so if you kind of yeah on the one hand you want you and your child even want to create independence but at the level of society we're sort of still bound by these rules that kind of you know that tension that exists between parent and child and dependence and independence like we're not an island right we all live together and 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 so our actions have effects and we kind of change our own behavior accordingly to what we feel other people you know will help us get along with other people as well. So the playground reflects how society wants children to play to turn them into productive grown-ups but it doesn't serve how children would choose to play when left alone and it's this unsupervised play that is so valuable to cities especially for placemaking and regeneration where it results in more desirable developments, where children can create vibrant community spaces that are populated and therefore safer. Natasha has a theory about what happens when kids can't play unsupervised outside. They play online. The, I mean, the other thing about the redesigned playground is that, okay, so great, it's like the best of, the best of, we're making the best of it, right? So we're reintroducing these, these risky activities in this designed, controlled watch space, it's probably the best that we can get. But what I think is really interesting is looking at the playground, the, the, these, these kind of redesigned playgrounds, and compare it to the other playground that we're not talking very much about, um, which is the online playground. Because what you get there um, is from the perspective of young people, it's, it is that enchanting space and it is that kind of, um, it's that space largely outside of parental control. It's that unwatched space. Um, and, you know, because devices are now small and portable and the minute your kid goes to secondary school, they basically get one. So at the age of, what are we talking about? 11. 11. They've got them. Um, and it's very easy to move away from the watchful eyes of parents. And I think I think that's the thing about playgrounds. And 
about the psychology of kids is that we all know kids are just, they reach a certain age where they just want to be uh, in their own space. You know, I think, I think we're also in a particularly uh, interesting time because generations, you know, we're, we're growing up with a very different kind of mix of media in our children's lives. And so while I think um, parents and adults of a certain generation definitely still see that kind of offline and online distinction we see you know we do think we say things like I'm taking myself off Facebook for a week because I can't take it anymore and it's very much still like what happens online what happens offline um meanwhile those worlds are absolutely interlinked but but our brains don't see it that way children on the other hand are growing up in a very different environment and kind of have a much more fluid understanding of the offline and online world and they kind of just get it um in a way now, that's not to say that the internet is is a safe space. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, if we're talking about our kids having some safe pavements where they can walk to each other's houses, that that seems like a safer environment than the kind of wilds of online sometimes. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing. I mean, so here we have this kind of space that is going to be occupied by children, um, and it is this kind of new frontier, and it's very exciting. I mean, it's exciting for all of us, um, but we, you know, as as adults, maybe kind of are able to process a lot of it more easily and better than than younger children can. And I mean, there's lots of things that we need to be we need to be aware of in terms of in terms of just kind of like eyes you know kids seeing stuff that they shouldn't at such a young age namely kind of sexual stuff and and kind of you know there are there are there's a certain amount of kind of oh I need to say that again I don't want to say that um it's not to say that there aren't risks online but I think why the online playground if we want to call it that is so interesting is that in the same way that these are the same things that we were growing up with. When we were growing up, if you had really strict parents, you snuck around and you didn't tell your parents what you were doing. And maybe you found yourself in dodgy circumstances and that wasn't a good thing. But maybe your parents talked to you about stuff and maybe your parents were a little bit more kind of um, trusting and just allowed you to kind of experience life a little bit more. And then we're there when things became a little bit too much for you to handle and you opened up that dialogue with your children. I think the same type, we're in the same kind of environment now with the online world. It feels big and scary and different, but so did the world to our parents. Our parents thought the world was big and scary and different to when they were growing up. And so the same, I think that, I think there are some lessons to try and understand around relationships between parents and children and how do we kind of create a dialogue instead of this culture of surveillance software and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it just begs to be hacked. It begs to be snuck around in the same way that kids forever have been trying to find spaces that where they're not being watched. So damaging is the tyranny of the car and its effect on street culture for children that movements like play streets have been founded and are extremely popular, seeing neighbours come together to close their road to traffic for a few hours to let the children play. 
Well, I mean, I th- it's been hugely successful in London, um, and I think it's directly um, due to the fact that parents are would love to give their children more play experiences on their doorstep. I mean, it's as simple as that, and and the only way you can do that is to not have cars up going up and down the road. So, I mean, it's we all feel it. We all remember what it was like when we were growing up, and and that's how kids want to play. They want to play in their immediate environment. They want to play with the their friend a couple doors down, I mean, that they go to school with. They don't want to have to travel. I mean, it's it's a pain. Getting to and from one of these playgrounds is is not ideal and also it requires supervision. So having that play street and which I is when, think just to explain what Play Streets is, so basically mm. the neighbors get together and close the road for yes. a period of time. Yes. Well, I think, it, I mean, it ticks a lot of boxes. So, I mean, it ticks the box, which is getting our kids in a in a really easy environment, which is on our doorstep to be able to play and run around and, and not be worried about cars. But it also is social. You know, it gets, it gets everybody out and it gets you talking to your neighbors and it, it just instills your space with a sense of community. Um... And I guess that's the thing, you know, I think that's what's coming back. And that's what I'm really hopeful about in terms of, um, you know, little little things that we can do that make a big difference in terms of creating community again and getting to know your neighbors and having eyes on 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 the road because the more you have that the more you create a sense of safety for everybody involved so not just children but older people um anyone who's vulnerable who who might not feel not feel great walking around and i think we do need to reclaim our streets and and reclaim our sense of community in the city because it's human it's a human it's a human instinct and i think we've gotten away from that in for, for, for many reasons, um, and hopefully we can we can bring some of that back and and kind of really um, humanize um, the city. What's interesting to me about play streets when we've been talking about these playgrounds is that there's no elaborate equipment here. Nobody's actually. It's just a road, and it just happens to not have cars in it. We've just made that environment playable, mm-hmm. and you don't have to tell kids what to do when they have an environment that's playable. You can just create it and they just go out and they have a a really great time together well I mean the ones that I've I've been to it's usually the kids just love running in and out of each other's houses it's just an open door policy and it's true it's that's what kids love they just love kind of being able to have that freedom to run around and do what they want but it's not it's not like they're they need much they're just, it is, it, you know, they're the connectors, aren't they? They kind of connect people in ways that they have no idea. And uh, just shutting, yeah, just removing cars brings that back almost immediately um, into into a neighborhood, which I think is really encouraging because, well, we know what we need to do, don't we? It's, it's, it is about limiting or, or sharing that space and finding ways to share the roads again. Um, because I think maybe it's tipped too far in the direction of, well, cars being prioritized. Um, and when these kids are running around and they're not, you know, perhaps it's, uh, they're not perhaps testing those physical boundaries that we like them to do in playgrounds mm-hmm. because we think that creates a healthy body and a, you know, a healthy mindset around risk. They are socializing in a different way by perhaps the absence of playground equipment means 
what they have to be more creative they have to make up games uh, sure but they'll also use what they've got and so they'll use a lamppost and you know they'll climb up it or they'll use a low a low fence or a low kind of wall in front of somebody's house to to walk along it it's there's plenty of things to play with in our immediate environment but what yeah the practical consideration that parents have to always bear in mind is just safety and and safety from cars primarily so so and it also depends on the kid obviously I mean some kids some kids need larger spaces um they need a park they need they need kind of wide open spaces and so that's why we need to continue to invest in our parks um and our playgrounds like you say I mean I think I think we're at a point where it's it's you know they are getting certain experiences there and to some extent it is kind of the best of a situation we aren't all living in a rural environments with big tall sweeping trees everywhere we just aren't um and that's the that's the reality of the situation and so well what can we do to replicate some of that um what I like about the parks, I mean, in, uh, London is a good example of this because there are many of them. We've talked about how kids, um, especially 12 and up, you know, they, they're hanging, hanging out is seen as a, an aggressive behavior on their part. And where can you actually hang out? I mean, they don't really want to be in a playground, hmm. um, but they can be in the park. I mean, it is kind of a designated space for hanging out grownups and children um the only thing is being able to get there get and get there safely and time of day so parks often close um and so where can older children teenagers go um to socialize and continue to kind of like you know test certain limits but within within um within sort of, I guess, you know, an acceptance. So it isn't risky. You know, they aren't being thrown into, you know, the deep end of city life, potentially. Um, And that's something else. That's that's a that's a different conversation. (laughs) That's a different conversation. And perhaps one that that we've already discussed in a sense that they are using the digital space to do that in. Well, yeah, that's. um, Yeah. And, and that dialogue just needs to be there. And, and we're getting better at it. I mean, I, I do hear it in in, um, in my daughter's school anyways. They do talk about cyberbullying and um, being just more open about kind of uh, um, the risks and how to kind of protect yourself and when just to be telling a parent or telling a grown-up and to not feel like you're going to get in trouble for that, you know? Um but yeah, so we're starting to understand it, but it's such early days for all of this stuff. And I think, I think that's why it's really important for us to learn from, from what's happened in the past and also know that these, these things are kind of, um, these fears that we have as parents are kind of, they've always been there. <laughs> so if you're designing a pe- playground, you need to put some risky structures in there. You need to <laughs> well. not be afraid of that uh, within reason. Um, and you need to really provide an opportunity for kids to choose their roots, stretch, grow, experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I would say every playground needs to have a climbing structure. That probably like get boring again. But, you know, boulders, you know, all these kind of materials that, that we used to encounter in, in nature um, when we play more naturally, that kind of stuff. And, and open-ended stuff, things where people can make their own little spaces. I think I, I came across a redesigned playground recently, and they had lots of little Wendy houses. And it looks really cute, and that's probably why they're there. But the kids love them, just like a little space that they can go into and, and hide away and just have their little moment. And so the more that we can create 
create that kind of stuff, I suppose, I suppose the better, but I mean, I don't know. So less panopticon, more places that you can hide in or conceal or have moments of seemingly independent play being really important. That, that is the ideal. I mean, you know, what's often really interesting is that in these redesigned spaces, the places that where kids can't be seen are the most popular. So you always think like, where's my kid? And they're in that one little bit of bush that like is tucked in the corner of the playground and they're hiding in there and they're having little chats with their friends and they've created a little den or a house or something like that. And I guess I think I would say the more we can create those environments or those opportunities for children, the better, whether that's on your front doorstep or and in your immediate, um, environment or in these design playgrounds um yeah let them let them do their thing and and really take um some advice from the adventure playgrounds that do incredible work along these lines you know allowing children to come into a place and design it themselves i know that's i mean i know that's really counterintuitive when you're redesigning a space like how do you design a space where it's 25% finished, you know, and then you create an environment where children want to come and finish it. And that's that adventure playground mentality is, I think, spot on. Um, And maybe sandbox, isn't it? It's a sandbox. Playground is sandbox. And the first German, they were called sandbox or they were called sand something, sand hills or something like that. The first the first playgrounds in Germany. And it really was that it's like create give materials, give the materials for play, for creativity and the kids will create it. And so that's really all you need to do. Great. Well, thank you for talking to me today. (laughs) Makes it sound so simple. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer. Produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray. For more podcasts, visit us at thedeveloper.live.